Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Our topic today is trauma and bereavement in children and adolescents, helping our families grow after a loss, and our guest is Dr. Norman Freed. Dr. Norman Freed is Director of Psychosocial Services for the Division of Pediatric Hematology Oncology at Winthrop University Hospital in Long Island, New York. A clinical psychologist with graduate degrees from Emory University, he has also taught in the medical school at New York University and the Graduate School of St. John's University, and has been fellow in clinical and pediatric psychology at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Freed is a disaster mental health specialist for the American Red Cross of Greater New York, and he has a private practice in grief and bereavement counseling on Long Island. He is married with three sons and lives in Roslyn, New York. Welcome to the show, Dr. Freed. Thank you. Can we call you Norman? You certainly can. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, welcome, Norman. I've, uh, what? Who did the cover on your book? It's pretty amazing. That is actually um, Da Vinci. Ah, no wonder it's so amazing. It was one of the last paintings that he painted before he died. It's called La Spagliata, and um, I think the publishers thought it was um, it had a sense of, of hope and mystery and some maternal pull as well. Yeah, it's lovely. Uh, the book is The Angel Letters, Lessons That Dying Can Teach Us About Living. And it's a wonderful book, wonderful stories in there about children that you interacted with uh, at the hospital. And I, I was really impressed with the the triage, how when somebody comes in and, and they are um, diagnosed, there was an immediate, tell us what hospital you were at, and there was an immediate coming together of a team. Well, I, the work that I did was a combination of about 15 years of effort at two different hospitals, North Shore University Hospital, the Children's Cancer Center uh, in uh, Great Neck, New York, and Winthrop University Hospital, the Cancer Center for Kids in Mineola, New York. And uh, over the last 15 years, um, these particular patients that are written about in the angel letters uh, were treated and um, uh, tended to at, uh, at both hospitals. Really wonderful. Now, tell us why. It's such a unique and unusual thing that you did. Rather than just telling a story, you have actually written letters to the children who you were with, talked about about their experience, your experience, uh, their experience seen through your eyes and with the family, and talk intimately about the parents. And then you talk about, uh, write to them about what happened after they died. There was one in particular that I was touched by, uh, a girl who died and her friend uh, was when you left, uh, when everyone left, you were walking down the hall or whatever and saw her friend sitting there and went up and talked to her friend and her little friend had been there all day long and had not been involved with the family but had been there waiting. I thought that was so touching. Mm. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it was, it was a, an indication of how she wanted to respect the family's needs but also had needs of her own. And unfortunately, uh, teenagers who are friends uh, really don't get to be a part of the process of saying goodbye. And, and they do suffer tremendously when they lose someone like that. I was going to say, for an adolescent, sometimes your peer group and your friends are as important, even more important in some cases, than your, your own family. So it's too bad that they're not more involved in saying goodbye and in that process. You know, you know there's, there's a good thing. It's both good and bad that they're not more involved. The, the, the good reason, the one positive effect of them not being that involved is that 
after the loss of a teenager, um, some of the families actually become overly invested in the child's friends, um, mm-hmm. and it becomes quite burdensome to those uh, teenagers who feel as if they can't they can't keep up with that level of need. That's that's really interesting because I'll tell you another thing that happened to me uh, when Scott died. I was more Heidi was uh, had gone back to college, and then we had a fourteen year old at home, and. I was very interested in having Scott's friends over, and right. my husband was not. Yeah. So that's a whole other issue. You know, uh, there are people who would like him there and people that it's very painful to see them. I think it depends on the family and, and how they handle it. But uh, there are times when, certainly around now, when the holidays are about are upon us or birthdays or anniversaries, where families will wish to invite the friends, the high school group mm-hmm. of, their, of their son or daughter that, uh, that died. And, and I think for a few years it's very helpful. Um, and then eventually one parent or both begins to say, I, I can't do this anymore. Um, because while it's wonderful to see and hear the stories of their loved one through the, through the words of, of his or her friends, after several years uh, they begin to recognize that these friends are moving on where their child cannot. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a dual-edged sword. Mm-hmm. So, folks out, out there, you know, remember that different family members have different ideas about who should come. And, and some friends, I found that some people came who had lost siblings themselves and wanted a little support from me. That was a whole, a, a, another side of it. Well, and also we have to remember that these teenagers have a life and they need to live a normal teenage life. And it can be a burden for them, like Dr. Free was saying, it can be a burden for them if they feel like they are obligated to spend a lot of time with their grieving, these grieving families. Right. Well, Heidi, what you were beginning to say about um, the attention that the teenagers need, the friends, I wanted to add something to that, which is that um, this age group grieves very differently than children do, so that when we hear about a teenager who says, I want to have a sleepover date or uh, stays in his room all day on the computer, parents worry that they are not dealing with the loss, what what I discover is that they're dealing very, perhaps very effectively with the loss through connecting with their friends, their peer group, listening to music, um, and having their own uh, way of expressing their grief. Uh, teenagers may, because of the age where they are feeling quite a vi- invincible, may really be rattled by this experience and really not want to share it with their folks. Now, it's Christmas time, and we've got, or holiday time, Hanukkah, whatever. We've got these teenagers out there. Uh, do you have any suggestions to the parents for these kids? Well, I would really hope that the folks recognize that children and teenagers grieve differently than adults do, and that there are many different signs of recovery, and that they are not simply by um, a teenager expressing his, his feelings through tears or open dialogue. Uh, children grieve through symbolism, they grieve through irritability, difficulties in sleeping, changes in eating habits. Teenagers will grieve by uh, listening to music or wishing to be with friends, writing poetry, and, and getting very existential. Mm-hmm. And so it's very important for folks to recognize that their child may be indeed grieving effectively, even if it's not the way they as adults would have expected. Right. Heidi, what did you need during the holidays after Scott died? Do you oh remember? Gosh, what did I need? Yeah. Um, oh, that's really tough. Well, I think, you know, I think as, as a, a child, I mean, I was 20 at the time, but I'm saying as a sibling that's grieving, you're, you're really concerned about your parents. And I think that what I needed is 
I needed for my parents. It was okay that my parents were grieving, but there was to a certain extent that I didn't want to see my parents too vulnerable during the holidays because I felt like I had to take care of them if it got to that point. So, um, and I also think I needed some normalcy. I needed some some regular things to happen during the holidays. And kind of putting our grief aside for a little bit and saying, okay, you know what, let's celebrate the holiday today. Or finding a way to integrate the grief into the rest of one's life. And I so, like that, And for so teenagers, thanks. So teenagers will say to their moms and dads, I need us to put a tree up this year. We need to decorate the house. And the mom and dad will say, I can't. I'm not in the mood. It's not the same anymore. And they need to recognize that while it isn't the same anymore, their other children require that break or that integration of grief into the rest of their lives. That's a, that's a good point, and I love what you just said, Norman, because the kids will push you forward if you'll listen. They'll say, we need to do this. That's and right. and I like, Tom, how there's the integration, so you can be move forward and you can still incorporate and integrate the person that died into your life in some way, into right. that ritual. I think that I think when folks go on with creating the, uh, the holiday spirit, they sometimes worry that they're forsaking their loved one. And they say to me, how can I be happy if my loved one is in heaven? How can I be enjoying my day if they're not here? And the answer is you're entitled to enjoy your day. Your sadness is always with you. But your children, the surviving ones, need to see a parent who's functioning and believes in the future. Otherwise, the child really isn't going very far. So creating those holiday events, as painful as they may be for the adults, really is very helpful for children. I think that's one reason. There's kind of a recommendation out there in the world that you kind of do the same thing you did during the first year. And I think that the reason it's a good idea is because you can just kind of go on autopilot. Right. You know, you don't have to make a lot of decisions. This is what we did, you know, what we did, and this is how we do it, and I'm not going to worry about, you know, anything. Right. Also, you can ask friends for help. Get somebody to help you put up the tree this year or, you know, whatever, you know. Uh, people will help you if, if you reach out to them. Your book, The Angel Letters, wonderful book. Um, it's a book that where you actually wrote letters to children who you've worked with who have died, and you tell their story. It's wonderful, and I highly recommend getting the book and reading those stories. And then you uh, go on in The Angel Letters to talk about um, what happened after the child died and how their family responded and that kind of thing, which which is extremely uh, helpful and interesting. A lot of good advice in this. We couldn't even begin on this show to even tap all the wonderful ideas, thoughts, and how you've brought things together. But I wanted to ask you, um, tell us about your thoughts about letters, because I love the idea of letters as being healing for bereaved families. Can you talk a little bit about why you wrote them as letters and what you recommend to people? I would love to. Um, The reason I wrote them as letters is because I had been working with these families uh, very, very intimately for years, and at the and at the end of each day, I would come home, and uh, my friends and family would say, "How was your day?" And I would tell them honestly how my day was, and they would say, "Whoa, we didn't really mean." <laughs> we really didn't want to hear all that. <laughs> and I'm talking about very sad things. And yeah. So I found that I didn't really have a place to debrief, to uh, express how I was feeling. Mm-hmm. So I began to write it down, but I missed these children. I still do so much that in writing to them directly, the child became part of my private audience. They became the person I was writing about as well as the person I was writing to for solace as well as to share my appreciation of their journey and struggle. And um, it actually became for me a, um, a, a particular type of style 
of, of living through grief, which I recommend for many folks, that the, the, the empty page can become a boundless landscape from, for which we can express all. I love that when you said that. I, I picked that up in the book. The empty page can become a boundless transcript. That, that's wonderful. It, it really can, and it maybe even someday become bound and help other people as well as hopefully the angel letters can. And I found that I could be honest. I could be uncompromising. I could be um, as real and as truthful as I needed to be because it was really a letter written to the child himself or herself. Years and years later, I discovered I had about ten, nine or ten letters that could possibly be helpful to other people. But the letters were written as if no one but the loved one was going to read them. And so I highly recommend if you've lost a child, grandchild, or a spouse, or whatever, take a look at this book, The Angel Letters, because I think Norman gives you a great idea of how you can write these letters and go on and write about how it hap- what happened after um, to this child. And it, tell us about why, Heidi and I have talked about it a lot, haven't we, Heidi, about why people need to tell stories? Uh, it's a wonderful question, Gloria, and I, I, I believe very much that uh, there's an art to storytelling and that each and every one of us in this world has a story to tell. Um, and I believe that those who have been through loss have a very important story to tell. And without using the page as a landscape or the friend or therapist as a concerned sounding board, we're not going to be able to get our story out. And storytelling does many things for the griever. Number one, it allows the person to haul up the memories and all of the details. And uh, sometimes the details are gory. But when we tell our story, we're actually honoring the experience without without immediately putting it in its place. Secondly, by telling our story over and over again, we're understanding that there are certain listeners out there that can appreciate our journey, can learn from our experience, and I'm not going to minimize what we've been through. How often have you heard or have other grievers heard people say things like, um, they're there, it's, it's going to be okay, God only gives us what we can handle, it's, uh, he's in a better place. Those comments are provided by well-meaning friends and relatives to provide salve or bomb for the pain of the mourner, but they really don't understand yeah, yeah, help. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Heidi, you... You know, we've had our grief minimized at times, haven't you had yours? Have I had mine? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and like Norman said, I think all of us do. And society maybe is well-meaning, but they do have fine ways to interrupt our grief. I mean, for siblings, when I say that I've had a brother die or when other siblings say they've had a sibling die, the first response people have is, well, that must be really hard on your parents. That must have been horrible for them. And what that does is it interrupts our story, and we now are talking about how hard it's been on our parents. That's right. Yeah, and I, I also find with the radio show that some people will, because they're friends, will say, oh, I listened into your radio show and I heard about uh, 10 minutes and I just couldn't, you know, it, it was too traumatic, I couldn't hear it. So not everyone can hear hear the story, and I understand that. These these are difficult. They're difficult stories right. to hear. Which is why uh, the letters became my type of therapy. Mm-hmm. But I do think that for those who, uh, you know, who are able to read the letters themselves and then read the postscripts, which are lessons that are learned from these particular deaths, um, I think that there's a real healing process involved. Absolutely, and I think to, t- to tell our stories over and over again in different ways is in itself very therapeutic and healing. 
Absolutely. Um, you know, it's interesting when I when I work with certain grievers, in particular when I was working with families of disasters. Yeah, you talked about the flight uh, eight hundred families. Yeah, the flight eight hundred families. I would find myself. And well, let's talk about that a little bit for people. That was a plane that crashed in New York. The East Mauritius, yes. And and what you, uh, when did that happen? It happened in in ninety seven. Okay. It happened ten years ago. And um, what what would happen is I would go to the Ramada Hotel at uh, JFK Airport every night, and I would sit with the families waiting to hear news of their loved ones' uh, recovery. There were no survivors. And um, every night I would get to the banquet hall and sit with these families, and they would tell me over and over again the same exact story, where they were when they heard the news, where they think their loved one was when the impact happened, etc., etc. And for a while I thought that there was some type of collective amnesia going on until I realized that this was the form of trauma for them, that it did not matter whether I heard the story many times before. What only mattered was that they could be able to say it as many times as they needed. And you were able to hear it. And when we're lucky enough to find a listener who's capable of enduring the intimacy and the pain, mm -hmm. we begin the healing process. Yeah. How did you find that with the 9-11 families? That you've been, now, you've been seeing them over five years, so have you yeah, seen I a change in the way they've years. done their stories? Um, absolutely. I needed to be able to go into their homes and hear their stories over and over in, in detail and not interrupt that process. And one thing that's helped me over the six years is that I go, we've gone in with a team of clinicians and afterwards, I have my own story because they're telling me these traumatic stories, and we are able to get together in the car after and talk about how this has impacted us. Right. It's a debriefing process. Absolutely, Norman. You know, there's, like, there's, a, there's a whole literature of research on um, post-traumatic stress disorder and then compassion fatigue, which is the secondary traumatic stress we as helpers of people in pain go through because of the journey that they're on. And that's important to remember because we do have some health care um, providers that listen in on the show, and, and it, it is tough. You know, I was impressed that you followed these families, saw some of them, uh, what, two years later? Which Are you talking to me? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I actually speak to these families sometimes ten years after the loss. Mm -hmm. uh, the wow. children that were written about in the book, most of them died uh, about six to ten years ago, and I... Still uh, speak to them on on uh, anniversaries, Mother's and Father's Day, and holidays. Wow, that that's amazing. That is, that is amazing because you know well. sometimes families uh, get pretty upset because the whole healthcare system deserts them after a certain amount of time, and I think that's due to fatigue. And also, the reality is um, there usually isn't any compensation for, for following families. There, there is no compensation, and I don't do it for for money. I, I make it a point of doing it for um, just out of love. Um, which of course makes it very hard in terms of of, the, of, uh, of continuing in terms of business. But I will tell you that it is a, another kind of loss. Families whose children have had a chronic illness and whose child has died due to protracted long-term illness, they experience a secondary loss, which is not just that of their child, but also of the family of doctors and nurses mm -hmm. and therapists that they come to know sometimes for months and years. And there's what we call an institutional transference where the family really misses the physicians and the physicians have moved on for their own purposes. 
And so there's a double whammy sometimes. Yeah. And, and I want our audience who has had this happen and who's feeling that and is all of a sudden saying, wow, yeah, people actually recognize that, that um, Dr. Freed is saying he does recognize that. It really is, um, it really is a, an issue, and we recognize that you're having that issue. And how do they deal with it? Well, many times what they'll do is they'll stay very close to the therapist, the social worker, the psychologist, the child life specialist that was working with their child because there's some type of um, very strong, even uh, spiritual, if not unconsciously psychological connection with that person. And if the therapist is, is wise enough and strong enough, they'll continue that connection and help them build a bridge to the next part of their life. Uh, wonderful point. Build a bridge to the next part. And if the, the people don't stay close, our folks out there may have to try to bring other people in to fill the gap. Maybe uh, some part of your religious community, uh, you know, find some other, maybe a group like Compassionate Friends or the hospital might have a group or, you know, find something uh, to move into that and realize that, I think the, the first thing in healing is to realize that other people do have that problem. This is not abnormal. It's, uh, it's unfortunately not abnormal, and it's, it's unfortunately um, something that many families are going through. And the, uh, the community of grievers that speak a common language can be very, very therapeutic to one another. Well, uh, Norman, it sounds like we have a caller. Mary Jane, are you there? Yeah, I sure am. Well, welcome to the show. Um, did you have a loss? I know you wanted to talk to Dr. Freed about something, but I wanted to ask a little bit about you first. Um, excuse me. Yeah, I did. Um, my uh, 14-year-old son died in April of a oh. brain aneurysm. Oh, I'm so sorry oh. to hear that. And you had a, uh, what was his name? Jeff. Jeff? Mm-hmm. Jeff. Uh, thank you. you. You had a question for Dr. Freed. Um, yeah, it was concerning. My, I have a 18-year-old son, uh, Jeff's brother, and I was interested in Dr. Freed elaborating a little bit more on teens' response to grief because uh, what I heard him say was that it is not unusual for teens to respond, or, and I think it's actually uh male teens to respond by connecting more with friends and kind of hanging with their peer group and listening to music and not really wanting to talk about grief. But that, I mean, that's kind of like normal behavior of a teen. Mm -hmm. And so I, I feel like I agree completely with what you said, but I kind of feel like the only way that I can uh, feel comfortable or, or kind of feel like my older son is grieving okay, if there's such a thing as that, is to watch that there's no, that he's not engaging in any negative mm -hmm. behaviors, like, you know, is he drinking more or is he, you know, doing anything risky? And I don't, you know, that doesn't give me a lot of comfort, just kind of knowing that he doesn't talk about it, but that's normal, but then... Well, you I know, didn't give you other signs that you could look for, Mary Jane, and I appreciate um, the call and, and the question because there's a lot more to talk about. Um, and in particular, I think we all know that if we do not cry with our eyes, we will cry with another organ in our body or with another behavior. And so teenagers will show their grief through um, sometimes um, more... Um, irritable behaviors, uh, sometimes they will be uh, more daring and um, challenging. Uh, as I mentioned, there may be some difficulties with sleep. 
um, oftentimes uh, uh, problems with peers or problems in school. Sometimes teenagers become more remote. Other times they become more clingy. And these are negative, albeit adaptive, behaviors to help the teen survive the pain of the loss. And so what I would ask you to do is look for what might be considered by most parents of teens a normal um, route of growth for the teenager, but to compare that to what he used to be like and to recognize that when he's coming home after curfew and screaming, it may not be because he's angry or because he's having a good time and doesn't, doesn't respect you, but it may be because he's trying to cry in his other, in other behavior. And if we were to see that as tears, if we were to hear it as tears, we wouldn't respond with anger. We would respond with compassion. Yeah, and Heidi, you were, um, you know, just around a teen when it happened. What, what is your thought about that? Um, I think what Norman is saying is, is as accurate. And this, Mary Jane, is the number one question I get from parents, what you're asking today. How do I know if this is normal teenage behavior or if I need to be concerned and if this is a warning sign that something's wrong because my teen is not communicating and I don't know how they're doing and I want to make sure they're okay. I guess my, I mean, there's a long explanation to it, but the short explanation would be our book, Teen Grief Relief, which you can buy on our blog, has all of the warning signs that you need to look for in the event that this is not just normal teenage behavior, mm-hmm. that it's a red flag that something else is going on. And I would suggest that you pick it up. Um, it's very easy to read. Just because you're asking a very good question, a lot of times right. teenagers don't communicate, and they're communicating in other ways, nonverbal ways, and we just want to make sure that they're, they're okay. Well, Mary Jane, uh, also, I'm, I'm thinking take care of yourself and, and think about finding a compassionate friends group or, I don't know, if you're, you're in a group or going to the candle lighting on Sunday and going on the Compassionate Friends website. You can look on the map and find out where there is um, a candle lighting going on in your area. And good luck with your loss. Uh, April yeah, is and, so short. And, Mom, I want to say one more thing to Mary Jane. Uh-huh. One thing that teens tell me all the time that parents can do is to go to them and say, look, I haven't had the death of a sibling. I haven't experienced the death of a brother. I know what it's like to lose a child, but I don't know what it's like to lose Jeff. And it must be very, very hard. And I want you to know I'm here for you in the event that you need me. Mm-hmm. I'm here. Heidi, can Great. I add one can I add yes. something to that? Yes. While while it's wonderful to say to a teenager, I'm here if you need me, teenagers generally don't take them up on that offer. Absolutely, they and don't. So what, 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 what Mary Jane can do and other parents of teenagers can do is have a mild disclosure of their own to say, look, I know you're not talking with words about how you feel about um, Jeff's death, but um, I'd like to tell you how it has impacted me, not with hysteria, not with too much passion or drama, but with a little bit of honesty and um, directness to let the teen know that you're okay even though you're hurting and that Mm -hmm. you cry, but that you dry your tears and you begin to function again and that there's a that your affect can be regulated to the structure of your day. Yeah, however, Mary Jane, April is such a short time, and as a bereaved parent, my heart goes out to you. It is rough. It is tough. You need to take care of yourself, and that's also a good example to your son of how he needs to take care of himself. And thank you so much for calling in. Please take good care of yourself. Thank you. Well, that was a wonderful call with uh, Mary Jane, and I know that it touched the hearts of our, our folks out there with those 
kinds of issues. And I wanted to ask you, when we went to break, Norman, I was saying that we want to talk a little bit about our folks out there who've had a bad hospital experience. And um, they really wasn't the support. They're angry. I mean, there may have been some things that they didn't feel like were done and all that kind of thing. What do you suggest to those folks out there who are feeling that kind of anger? Wow, what a question. Um, a lot of folks feel anger. <laughs> and um, it's kind of hard to answer because it's, it's, it's not easy to determine where the anger is really directed to. I, I have uh, many patients who are very angry with me because I may not have returned enough phone calls or been available as much as they wished. And a lot of times families will talk about how perhaps the doctors made a mistake or could have done something differently or went on vacation when they shouldn't have. And it's what's hard about it, Gloria and Heidi, is that the, um, is that the, the anger sometimes is displaced anger, that perhaps it's anger at God for a sense of being abandoned, but it's hard for us to be angry with God, so it's easy to be angry with a doctor. Or it's um, anger at the child for leaving, and it's hard to admit that, so the anger comes out at a spouse or at the hospital uh, institution. What I would suggest is to ask folks that are that are struggling with with their anger towards the hospital, what part of it belongs to the the, the team and the medical care, and what part of it belongs to their loss and their grief and their feeling of abandonment. And if they can't get an answer, that they continue talking perhaps to a grief counselor or to a members of a support group or others who have been through this. So and Norman telling their story, right? And telling their story to someone who will listen without a judgmental ear. Absolutely, and maybe write some letters like you do in Angel Letters in your Thank wonderful you. book. Thank write you. some true. letters about your child. Write write what happened and re-clarify it. And maybe there maybe there is a reason to be angry, and maybe uh, you need to write a letter to the doctor at the hospital. I don't know. Absolutely, or have a post-mortem conversation to get greater information as to why this could have been. I will tell you that, um, <coughs> that in... Um, in being a parent, we always wonder and worry about our children. When they're alive, we worry, are they cold? Do they bring enough warm clothing when they went outside? Are they wearing an, do, they, do they have a raincoat if it's raining, etc.? And when a child dies, we still worry about them, and we worry sometimes by being angry with the physicians. It's a way of saying, what if I did it differently? That's and also, I still care. And I still care. And I haven't I'm forgotten. Really parent. Yeah. Well, I think, again, I want to say uh, to our audience out there, I think the first thing you have to realize is that it's not unusual to feel angry. It's okay. And, and anger is part of grief, and it's legitimate. And I'm thinking also writing, writing a letter to God about why you're angry, writing a letter to your child about why you're angry that they abandon you. Absolutely. Well, Heidi, um, you're a bereaved sibling, and I noticed that Norm has an interest, and, and it's just in with Mary Jane's call, too, about siblings. And uh, I was noticing, Norm, that you were thinking that maybe your next book would be something to do with siblings. And I wanted to ask you, um, do you think that uh, what can parents do to help their surviving, surviving siblings? Interesting, Gloria. I don't think I ever told you this, but I'm writing a book called The Sibling Letters. Ah. And, and it's all about the experiences of just um, brothers and sisters and how they have often felt pushed aside and um, and at times forgotten about. During I think I saw this on your website. You talked a little bit. I like that word, pushed aside. Don't you like that, Heidi? Oh, I love it, and I love it. Norman's taking this on because there's not enough 
enough that, that people are doing to recognize that these siblings, like you said, are being overlooked oftentimes and unacknowledged. And the child who herself actually feels as if there, there's something um, that they may have been responsible for. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes a child, a sibling will feel as if perhaps he wished ill on his brother or sister and then his, you know, maybe had a fight and then his, indeed his, his deepest wish and fear came true. Other times siblings feel as if um, they're so angry with their parents for ignoring them that they actually might have an un, uh, a fiendish unconscious relief when their sibling dies and then they feel guilty for years when they need to know that's a perfectly human emotion and that they only wish the best for their loved one. I've heard siblings say, you know what, my sick sibling gets all the gifts and all the presents. What about me? Right. I get nothing. And the phone calls. Mm-hmm. Now, um, what if, uh, well, one of the things that I, I think it's important to realize is that for our audience out there, if you have had a child die and the child has a sibling or a grandchild, you uh, uh, might take an opportunity, particularly maybe if you're a grandparent or something, to talk a little bit with those siblings about how they're feeling because there may be a story. How did you? How did it go with you and your sibling before they died? How, what was your relationship like? And uh, you might find out that they do carry some responsibility for that is unwarranted for their uh, sibling's death. Heidi uh, says something which I think is great, um, which is if we didn't love them and didn't care about them, we wouldn't have fought with them. Right, Heidi? Right, because we wouldn't, we wouldn't put that kind of emotion into a relationship that we didn't care about. And if we didn't care about them, we wouldn't be hurting now. Absolutely. And there's a wonderful organization, um, Norman, you may know about it, called Super Sibs. Yeah, sure. And it, it, their focus is on the sibling that wasn't sick, the well sibling. So that would be a great uh, organization for maybe you to take a look into as super sibs. And also to recognize that sometimes the siblings may need some individual attention and that there are grief therapists in the, in the country that can provide psychological support and individual attention to the, re, to the surviving sibling who deserves that attention just for being who they are. Absolutely, because yeah. the sibling relationship is the longest relationship we will have, most of us. I mean, it's supposed to be 80 to 100% of your lifetime. And these relationships are so significant in our lives, and I feel that oftentimes when a family member dies, a child, the the focus and attention is on the parent's loss. I'll have to say, though, um, I have, you know, sometimes you can try to get your, the siblings into therapy, which I did with my kids, and it doesn't really work out for them. They're not ready for it. They don't want to do it. Or, so, you know, you can't force them into it. So, true. You know, but, you know what, but you know what, Heidi, you can get, your, the parent, him or herself, can get into therapy to discover ways to help the child. Children yeah. do not have to be in therapy to benefit from therapy. Absolutely. That's what I always say, Norman. When, pe- when parents come to me that have teenagers, and say, I'm worried about my team, but they won't go to therapy. I said, then you need to go to therapy and talk to the therapist about best ways of helping this child cope. Well, actually, sometimes, you know, depending upon the therapist's perspective, it's even more helpful to work with the adults. Mm-hmm. I often say to the folks that I work with that I may get your child for an hour a week, but you get him for 160 hours or more. And so what I can teach you will go a lot further than what I could give him on a weekly basis. Uh, how can our audience get a hold of you? The best way to reach me is through my website, um, which is normanfried.com. That's N-O-R-M-A-N-F-R-I-E-D, one word, dot com. On the website, um, you can find... Um, different information about how to get through the griefing process. I, I enter new essays once or, once or twice a month. But there's also a, sp- a space where you can contact me, and I am more than uh, willing to respond and um, see if I can help. 
I also love on his website, he reads the angel letter, so you can see him, a little bit of his book. Mm-hmm. But also, there are little kind of post-stamp pictures on there, and when you hit on the picture, someone asks him a question, and then he gives an answer, and they're really quite quite compelling uh, thoughts about um, things that you have, grief and loss kinds of issues, there, uh, or illness kind of issues. They're really quite wonderful. Mm-hmm. And also... Um, Let's see, there was one more point I wanted to make about getting... Oh, I know, I wanted to say that you're also um, in private practice. If there are any people around the New York metropolitan area, can you tell folks where you are? I'm located in uh, in Great Neck, New York. I have a private practice um, where I see um, grief and bereavement um, issues for children and adults. And the book is on sale at uh, all bookstores, Barnes & Noble's Borders, and at Amazon.com. Good. I'm glad you said that. The Angel Letters, Lessons That Dying Can Teach Us About Living by Dr. Norman Freed, F-R-I-E-D. So we hope that um, you'll get these books. Well, I wanted to ask you um, a little bit before before we close the show about um, mothers and fathers' different response to death. Can you just give us a quick snapshot of that? Okay, sure. Uh, mothers and fathers definitely grieve uh, differently. As mothers... Uh, Women in particular will find themselves describing the experience as uh, some describe it as, as like losing a limb and learning how to walk all over again for the first time. Um, women become the grief. They actually feel it viscerally and um, it surrounds them and they kind of submerge into it. Men are a little different for the most part. Men find themselves uh, getting busy and um, becoming more of the functioner for the family and in the process find some distraction and solace in the work that they do. But when they turn inward, they realize that they haven't really been uh, addressing the pain and require that attention. I think that that is a great snapshot of that. I, I'm sorry we didn't spend more time on it in the show, but I was really impressed with your thoughts about that. And, uh, when I, and you can get some of those thoughts in the book. So you might well want to get that. I wanted to ask you, do you have any um, rituals, uh, any quick rituals that you want to mention during the holidays that people might do? I, actually, there's one beautiful ritual that I do with many families that are grieving. We, um, we uh, take a, a wreath and light candles uh, around the wreath, and each candle is in reference to some special feature in the relationship we have with our loved one. And everyone in the family has a chance to light their candle and say a little story about what this what this candle represents towards the relationship we had. It's a way of honoring our loved one and putting the pain somewhere where we're allowing ourselves to move into the season, integrating loss with life. Oh, that's wonderful. And also, we didn't talk about this, but that gives you an opportunity to compartmentalize your grief a little bit so you can say, okay, we... You know, I don't have to feel guilty, particularly for kids, about doing this now. You know, we did have a time when we when we paid attention to that. Right, we so, honored the person that died. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, it's time for us to close the show now. And I wondered, Norma, do you have something that you'd like to read to close the show or some thought that you have? I, I, you know, I was looking through the book itself, and I wanted to read just one paragraph, which I, 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 I don't know, I think it summarizes a lot of the way I feel about grief, and it is the following. In the end, perhaps the greatest lesson of loving is that there really is no death, only grief. Love and the energy that love creates lives on, even though the tra- even through the transformation from the physical to the spiritual. As long as there is love, we know we can survive our grief until we meet again in a place or dimension where love is all there is. Ah, thank you. That's beautiful. 
So it's time for us to close our show, and I want to thank our guest, Dr. Norman Freed. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.